right, let's pray together. Father, we are grateful for a warm place to be and for some time to spend looking at your word, getting to know it better. We ask that you would help us to get along with each other, that your spirit would keep us in unity, that you'd draw us into a a deeper appreciation of you and your ways. May your spirit be our teacher. And please build us up so that we will be more closely coordinated with our Savior and our head, the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask this through him and for his sake. Amen. Okay. Tonight we're going to continue as we study bibliology to look at the contents of the Bible. Now, last week, I kind of cheated the hermeneutics class by going way over in theology. This time, we'll probably be short in theology and spend more time in hermeneutics to compensate. All right? All right, what we're going to do is we're going to sort of break down what's in the Bible in terms of categories and then sort of reassemble it in other categories to kind of get what you would call an analytical view of the Bible first, that's looking at the pieces, and then get a synthetic view, that's sort of looking at how the pieces go together to make a whole. There's nothing inspired about anything I'm going to present tonight. It's just my reflections and the reflections of other people trying to view what's in the Bible kind of in a well-organized way. Right, now, the first thing that we need to pay attention to is the fact that the Old Testament has been arranged in a number of different ways, but it has always contained the same books. Okay? You may look in a Hebrew Bible and you'll find the books in a different order. You'll even find a different number of books in the Old Testament. But there are no fewer verses or words It's because the Hebrew Bible not only has a different order, but sometimes it combines books. Okay? Um, You know, the book of... We have 1st and 2nd Kings in the Hebrew Bible. It's just the book of Kings, for example. We have Ezra and Nehemiah in the Hebrew Bible. It's one book. But it's still the same stuff. So it's just organized a little bit differently. Okay? And and that fact has been true essentially since the time that the Old Testament was completed and viewed as a whole, which was somewhere between around 400 and 200 B.C. All right? Okay. Now, why were some of the books combined in a different way than we see them in our Bibles? It may have been simply that when they wrote these books out, they they did this all by hand when they made copies, they would use a scroll of a certain fixed length. And so in order to fill the scroll, they might stick some books in there just so they didn't waste the writing material, which was very, very expensive. And the process of writing these things out by hand was very laborious. Okay? Or it may have been in some cases that they recognized that certain books belong together, like First and Second Kings and Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra and Nehemiah 
were quite probably written by one person. We split them, recognizing that they have differing topics, but they are kind of joined together in that they treat a certain period of time. And they are probably written by uh, Nehemiah. Okay. Now, one of the ways in which the Bible has been organized is the Hebrew way of organizing it. It was broken down into the law or Torah. And if you notice the law, what is it? What do we call these five books? The Pentateuch. Pentateuch just means five books in Latin. Okay? These are also called the books of whom? Moses. Okay. Then there are the prophets. Now they call Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings prophets. Okay? We don't do that. They call them the former prophets, and they call Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the twelve minor prophets the latter prophets. Now notice that we basically have, this. it's not exactly, but we basically have an organization that these are books that treat an earlier period of time, and these treat a later period of time, although there's some overlap, because Kings goes all the way down to the Babylonian captivity. And Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel were all written before the Babylonian captivity. But there's kind of a breakdown into earlier books and later books. It's not very, it's not very uh, rigid there. And then there's the group called the writings. The, we have the poetic books, Psalm, Psalms, Job, and Proverbs. And then the five roles, this is also called the megaloth, if any of you ever heard that word, you probably haven't, but that's kind of like Torah, Ruth, the Song of Songs, Lamentations, and Esther, and then the historical books. Now, what do we do with Daniel? We call Daniel a what? A prophet, okay? You can sort of see why, though, this is called a historical book, can't you? Because a lot of it is just history. Daniel is an interesting book and that it has about an equal mix of history and prophecy. Now, Isaiah has some history in it, right? That section in the middle that talks about the attack of, um, what was his name? Sennacherib. Okay, but most of Isaiah is prophecy. Ezra and Nehemiah are obviously historical books, and Chronicles is obviously a historical book. But then you say... Why is Chronicles called a historical book and Kings is not? And the answer is, I don't know why. That's just the way they organized it. Now remember, whoops, that's not what I wanted to do. Let me go back. Why didn't it go dark? Okay. Remember that the Bible was not, the Old Testament was not delivered at one moment as a completed work, Right? The Old Testament is made up of 39 books or 24, depending on how you organize them, that were written over a period of time, probably starting as early as the Exodus, which is 1446 B.C., going all the way down to about 400 B.C. when the book of Malachi was written. And the book of Job may have been written even earlier than 1446. We don't know when that was written. Some people think it was before the time of Moses. But these books were written one at a time, 
and they were recognized by the Jews as being the word of God and they were collected. So there was, you know, it wasn't all handed to them at once. So they've got this group of 39 or 24 books, you know, they're in a pile on the table and the question is, well, how do we organize them? Well, what I just showed you is the way that the Jews organized them. Now, later on, something called the Septuagint was made. Now, the Septuagint was a translation of the books of the Hebrew Bible into the Greek language. All right, let's, let's talk a little bit about history. Now, if I had a bigger map up here, Greece would be up here, okay? Iraq and Iran, which were Babylonia and Persia, would be over here. And if you go farther east, you come to India and Pakistan and all those places. Down here is Egypt, okay? Around 332 BC, Alexander the Great decided that he wanted to expand the Greek Empire beyond Greece, and in the space of about 10 years, he conquered all of the civilized world from Greece up here, down to Egypt, down here, all the way over, at least as far as India. And when he did that, he spread Greek culture, he set up Greek governments, and in particular what he did was he made the Greek language the language of the civilized world. Now, before that, the language of the civilized world had been Aramaic, and before that, um, let's see, it had been Akkadian, but as, as the Jews went through history, they would have to learn the languages of whoever happened to be the dominant people in the world at that time. Now, at the time of King David and King Solomon, Israel was the power in this area, so they just used their own language. But later the Assyrians came in and conquered them, and then the Babylonians, and they had to learn their languages. Then the Greeks came in, and the people of Israel and the people all around this area had to learn Greek. By the time we get down to about A.D. 250, that's about 70 years after Alexander died, everybody is speaking Greek and nobody remembers how to speak Hebrew. Hebrew had essentially become a dead language. But the Jews wanted to be able to read their scriptures. They wanted the common man to be able to read their scriptures. So they got together, <coughs> working in this city called Alexandria, you can guess who that was named after, right? <laughs> Alexander. There are Alexandrias all over the world here. Okay, This is Alexandria in Egypt. There are many more of them. They got together and they translated the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek. And what they produced is called the Septuagint. Now it's called the Septuagint that's a Latin word that I believe means 70. It's called the Septuagint because there is a legend that the 70 translators all translated all the books of the Bible, and when they got together and compared them, 
all 70 of them had exactly the same translation of the book of Genesis and exactly the same translation of all the other books. Okay? It almost certainly is not true. But that was the legend. And the title is what we use today for the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It's often called the LXX. Have any of you ever seen that, that term? That's the abbreviation for the translation of the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek. You, know, you may see in your Bible sometimes there'll be a footnote that'll say Masoretic text, then it'll say the Septuagint or the uh, Peshitta or something has a slightly different word. Do you ever have those notes in your Bible? Okay. Well, what they're talking about is they're saying the Hebrew has this word but if you look at the Greek translation, it has a different word. In some cases, the translation into Greek doesn't agree with the original Hebrew. That's probably because the translators didn't understand Hebrew very well. Now, here's a, qu a quick quiz question for you. What is inspired? The Hebrew Old Testament or the Greek Old Testament? Why do we say that? Okay. It's our understanding that the Hebrew is the original. The LXX is a translation of the original, and although that legend says that it was an inspired translation, it probably wasn't. Okay? There are differences between them. Now, just think about that for a moment. That brings to mind something similar that's going on in our modern English translations, right? There's the original Greek for the Old Testament. I'm sorry, the original Hebrew for the Old Testament, the original Greek for the New Testament. Those are translated into English, and we read them here. The translations are not inspired. They're very good, and in most cases, they're just as good as the Hebrew. But it's important to remember that translations are not inspired because they were not the outbreathed word of God. They're the effort of men to take the outbreathed word of God and translate it into a language that we can understand. Okay? Now, the Greeks, the Greek Jews who translated the Septuagint down here in Alexandria organized it differently than the earlier Jews had organized it. They organized it in a very Greek way. The Greek mind is very orderly. And so they organized things largely according to kind of book or topic. So we've got the law, we've got the historical books, We've got the poetic books, and we've got the prophets. Does this look like anything you know? What's it look like? It looks like our Bibles, okay? Our Bibles follow the Greek order. Now, in some ways, that's good, and in some ways, it's bad. Did you ever sit down to read the Old Testament through from beginning to end? And what do you discover? It's not chronological. Okay? Now, part of that is simply due to the fact that some parts of the Bible retrace the same material. 
First and Second Kings cover largely the same material as First and Second Chronicles. Okay, so the fact that they're there means it can't be completely chronological. And if you took the time to study the dates of the prophets, you would see that some of the prophets overlap with each other. They overlap with the historical periods, and so. There's really no way to organize the books of the Bible in a strictly chronological order. But this is a useful way of organizing it, and this is what we're used to. Okay? You ever wondered where it came from? It came from the Greek Jews who translated and organized it. Okay. Oops. I keep hitting the wrong key. Any questions so far? All right. Let's keep going. I, I guess okay. Hit me. Why would, why would there be a Latin name for the translation? Okay. That's a great question. Um, we use Latin names for many things. Pentateuch is Latin. Septuagint is Latin. Because the Roman Catholic Church, which started in Rome, was a Latin-speaking church and it dominated Christian history from about A.D. 300 up until A.D. 1500. And so those terms just came into use, and we continue to use them. Um, there are Hebrew names. I don't know them, but, you know, there are Hebrew names for the sections of the Bible, but I don't know if there are Hebrew names for the sections of the Greek Bible. There might be Greek names for them, but I don't know what they are if they exist. Great question. I don't have a great answer. Okay. Now, the New Testament was written in Greek, and it's pretty much always been organized in the same way. Now, remember, just as the books of the Old Testament were written over a spread of time, in the Old Testament, it was about a thousand years the books of the New Testament were also written over a spread of time. Now, it was probably as little as 40 or 50 years. It's getting hot in here, isn't it? Uh, why don't we open the doors and just try to let some of this heat out? books written in the New Testament were probably written uh, maybe 45 A.D. The latest book was the book of Revelation. It was written around 95 or 97. Okay? But they, too, were written one by one, and then they were collected and put together. And when they were organized, they were generally organized like this. So we've got four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We've got one historical book, at least that's one way to look at it, although actually the Gospels are historical books too, aren't they? Then we have the epistles. Now what, what does that word epistle mean? Letters. It just means a letter. Okay. Um, it's a little odd that we put the book of Hebrews in the epistles because it's not quite a letter. It seems to be a letter that includes a sermon or something like that. But it's close enough, so that's where we put it. 
Now, I, I put dot, dot, dot in here because I couldn't fit 21 epistles in this column. And then we've got one book that is primarily prophecy. This thing is really fuzzy, isn't it? Um, is the book of Revelation the only book containing prophecy in the New Testament? Not at all. Okay, not at all. But it is the one book that is primarily prophetic. Okay. Now let's talk a little bit about the dates of the Old Testament books. Um, in order to do this, let me, let me see if I can throw up a quick timeline for you here. Let's see how good my memory is. A timeline of Old Testament Israel. Can you see this orange? Okay. Abraham was born around 2100 B.C. It was about 1876 that the Jews went down to Egypt. It was 1446 when they came out in the Exodus. It was 1071 when Saul became king. And then after Saul, David became king. That was in uh, <coughs> 1071. Somebody correct me if I've got this wrong. I, I can work backwards. Solomon ended in 931. No, it wasn't 1071. Okay, Solomon came to the throne in 971. David came to the throne in 1011. It was 1051. Okay? But anyway, the key thing here is that it was only a period of 120 years that Israel was united as one kingdom under one king. This period is known as the United Monarchy. Okay, now after that, starting in 931, the kingdom split, and we had the northern tribes the area that came to be called Israel and the southern tribes, the area that came to be called <laughs> Judah, as two separate kingdoms. Now, one of the things that's terribly confusing in the Old Testament is that sometimes when you see the word Israel and it's talking about the nation, sometimes it means the whole nation, all 12 tribes. And there are other times when it only means the northern kingdom. Now, if you see a place where it says all Israel and all Judah, the reason they're saying that is that that was written after the kingdom split, and they want you to recognize that it's talking about all the Jews as a whole, even though the kingdoms are split. Okay, if you go to, uh, for example, if you go to Jeremiah 31, take a look at that. I think we see this there. Look at Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31. Now remember, Jeremiah was written after the kingdom had split. And the Lord says, Behold, the days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. 
Now the reason it's said that way is to make us know that we're talking about all the Israelites. By this point in history, the house of Israel essentially means the ten northern tribes, and the house of Judah essentially means Judah and Benjamin, the two southern tribes. Okay? Now, the reason I'm pointing this out to you is that when you see the word Israel in the Old Testament, you always have to ask yourself, is it talking about the entire nation, meaning all the descendants of Jacob and the twelve patriarchs, or is it only talking about the northern kingdom? And the only way to find out is to look at the context. So be careful of that. That's a thing that trips us up in our scripture reading. All right, anyway, from 931 down to about 722, we've got two kingdoms. We've got the northern kingdom of Israel, and we've got the southern kingdom of Judah. Now, in 722, the Assyrians came in and conquered the northern kingdom of Israel and took her people and scattered them all over their empire. The southern kingdom of Judah continued on until 586, and in 586, the Babylonians did the same thing to the people of Judah that the Assyrians had done to the people of Israel. Did I say that right? Okay. Now, what I'm saying here is that from 931 to 722, this is the time of what's called the divided monarchy. Have you heard that term? Okay, so the, the united monarchy is this period from 1051 to 931, only 120 years. The divided monarchy lasted about 200 years, a little more than 200 years. And Judah survived another 130, 140 years beyond the time that the northern kingdom was absorbed by the Assyrians. Okay? But having said all of that, all the books of the Old Testament were basically written between the time of the Exodus, 1446, and the last, the writing of the last book of the Old Testament, which is the book of Malachi. And if the book of Job was written earlier, we'd push this line out farther. We just don't have any basis at this point to know when the book of Job was written. Okay? Now I think Let's see, yeah. The reason we did that is to make sense of what we're looking at here. You can approximately break down the books of the Old Testament into the pre-monarchic period. This is the time before Israel became a kingdom and had a king. And you've got Job, you've got the Pentateuch, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and 1 Samuel. Then we've got the monarchic period, the time when there was a kingdom of some sort involving Israel. That goes from 1051, when Saul became king, down to 586, when Judah was taken away in exile by the Babylonians. There are lots and lots of books in there. Second Samuel, the Song of Solomon, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, a whole pile of the prophets, I won't read off their names, the Psalms, and then another group of prophets down here. 
Okay, now these are organized roughly in chronological order within that category. And then, why is that called epistles? That's a misprint. That's a misprint. I don't know why I did that. Um, I think that's supposed to be history. What is it? Is that post-monarchical? Okay, well, first kings... See, first kings fits into the monarchic period. Is that what it says in the notes? Yeah. I wonder. I wonder why I did that. Um, well, okay, I'll, I'll tell you why it's done there. These books include material from the post-monarchic period. All of these books have parts of them that were written after the fall of Jerusalem, and that's why it's set up this way. Okay. Again, it's difficult to make this kind of organization because some of these books, First Kings, goes all the way from the time of King Solomon down to after, after or down to the Babylonian captivity, and First and Second <coughs> Chronicles covers roughly the same period and goes all the way down to the time when the Jews started going back into the land at the end of the Babylonian captivity. So you, you, you can't just put them in neat <coughs> slots. Okay, but I need to correct that. Sorry about that. I'm glad some of you were looking at the notes. Okay, now let's, let's kind of change gears here and let's start to think about things synthetically. Sort of looking how it all goes together. Okay? Do any of you know this book Sidlow Baxter's Explore the Book. That is a great book. It is a great book. If you, if you had only one book to help you study the Bible, honestly, that's the one that I would have. And, it, and it's not only helpful in terms of information, it's very spiritually uplifting. And the guy who wrote it, he's just a great guy, and you read his stuff. He'll make you love Scripture more, and he'll make you love God more. It's a really cool book. Um, what he does is he notices that you can organize the Old Testament in a very nice <coughs> symmetrical structure. There are 17 historical books, 5 poetic books, and 17 prophetic books. In each one of these categories, there are 5 basic books. In the historical books and in the prophetic books, there happen to be nine pre-exilic books. There are nine pre-exilic historical books and nine pre-exilic prophetic books. There are three post-exilic historical books and three post-exilic prophetic books. Question. Did I leave one out? I must have left one out if there's one missing, because there should be nine. One, two, three, four. Yeah, I left one out. Jose, Julian, so Yeah, you're missing that. Okay. Another correction to make. <laughs> I was scrambling this week to get this done. Well, thank you. Um, now, again, when we call these pre-exilic, some of these books include post-exilic material, okay? And the other thing to say, you, you look at this and you say, 
this can't be a coincidence, and I agree it's not a coincidence, but remember, the only reason this works is because it's organized on the way the Greeks organized the Bible. I would call this kind of a non-inspired divine design, if that makes sense. Okay? It's very helpful for remembering. And there's no question that this is a very workable means of organization. But, you know, you don't want to say, well, you can't organize the Hebrew Bible that way. You know, you just don't want to go there, okay? This, this is a useful tool. View it as that and nothing more. Now, when we go to the New Testament, he kind of pictures this as a foundation with two pillars and a roof. Now, again, that's just a nice idea, but it's helpful. The historical foundation for the New Testament is the four Gospels and the book of Acts. We have four accounts of the life of Christ, and then we have the book of Acts, which is an account of what? Yeah, it's an account of the early church, the spread of the early church. It's an account of the work of the apostles to carry out the first stage of the Great Commission, if you want to think about it that way. Now, building on that foundation, we have nine epistles written by Paul, and we have nine what Baxter calls the Jewish Christian epistles, and I tend to agree with that. Now, some people would say these are not all Jewish Christian books, but they do seem to have a Jewish flavor. Again, don't take this as inspired. If you don't like calling these Jewish Christian epistles, that's okay with me. It's not inspired. But again, it's a, it's a helpful way of organizing things. And then at the top, we have the pastoral epistles. Now, the pastoral epistles are called that why. Does anybody know? There's a lot Okay, there's a lot of material about being a pastor. You could also argue that they're all written to pastors. Okay? Philemon was a pastor, Titus was, and Timothy was a pastor twice, I guess. No, he was a pastor for a long time. Um, again, there's this nice symmetry. We've got five foundational books, and we've got these two pillars, if you want to call them, of nine books, and then four pastoral epistles on the top. Okay? It's a nice mnemonic tool. You know that word? Mnum I can't say it. Mnemonic. Okay, good. It's a mnemonic tool. And, and that means what? It me helps you to remember. Yes. Okay, good. All right. Now, this is not in your notes, and I don't expect you to memorize it, but I want, I've just, you'll see what this is in a minute. I just put this in to show you that there are a lot of different ways to organize things in your thinking about the Old Testament. Those of you in the back can't read this, but I'll tell you what's up here. There's a timeline up here going from 850 down to 400, and each one of these little things with the two diamonds that you see is one of the prophetic books from that group of 17 prophetic books. Now, what I've done is I've organized them chronologically. And the interesting thing, oh, and by the way, over here you have the ministries of Elijah 
and Elisha. Now this is all to scale. Now if you look at this, do you notice that they tend to clump? There's a group here, there's a group here, there's a group here, there's a group here, and then there's Malachi sitting over here. Now, important dates here. 722, that's that vertical line. That's when the northern kingdom of Israel was carried off by the Assyrians. 605, 597, and 586. Those are the three dates in which the Babylonians attacked Jerusalem. And 586 is when they finally carried the people of Judah off to Babylon. 539, this date down here, 538, is when the Babylonians allowed the Jews, those who wanted to, to go back to the Promised Land, back to Jerusalem. Then 458 and 444 were the times of two additional returns to the land under Ezra and Nehemiah. Now you say, why do I have all that there? Well, watch how this works out. We've got two early prophets, and they spoke to the entire nation, because at that time... The nation was, both parts of the nation were still there. They were already split into two nations, but they were both in existence. That's Obadiah and Joel. Then, we have five prophets who spoke before and around the time of the fall of the northern kingdom of Israel. And what's their message? They're saying, repent, God is displeased at your poor spiritual condition, it's your unfaithfulness to him. If you don't repent, God is going to send somebody in to clean your clock. Well, guess what? It happened. 722. Well, then, there's another group of prophets right before and around the fall of Jerusalem. Okay, why? Because the people of Judah needed to be warned. They didn't listen to the warning either. Then, there are two prophets and they come at the time that the temple is being rebuilt when the Jews went back to the land. And then we've got one prophet down near the end. But what you see here is that God sent the prophets to talk to the nation right before key events. Now, you, you can say that God knew that they weren't going to respond and you could say, well, why did he send them? But I don't think that's the right way to look at it. I think he came to warn them so that they would see when the calamity came that it was not just a natural occurrence. They could look back and they say, these prophets were all warning us that it was going to happen. And that went in the historical record and we look back at it and we say, gee, Look at all the people God sent to warn the northern kingdom. And then the thing that he warned them of happened. What does that demonstrate? It demonstrates the sovereign control of God over history, right? Same thing happened with the fall of the southern kingdom. And then when some of the Jews went back to rebuild the temple, and it's just a small group of people, and they're feeling very insignificant and very ineffective, God sends Haggai and Zechariah to encourage them. So you can see, just by looking at the dates of the prophets, you can kind of see how God was working 
to get his business done and also to set up this information so that we could look back over history and see his hand at work. Isn't that kind of neat? So, you know, it, it, what's that? I can get you a copy of it if you want. Um, my point in showing this to you was not that I expect you to remember this, although you're welcome to remember it if you want to. It, it's just, my point is that by looking at the information in Scripture in different ways, you can see things that were not obvious to you. Okay? Joe. And do they jump around like kings and chronicles and all that? And they'll bring the prophets in next to the historical books and things like that. Yeah, that's neat. That's neat. Um, yeah, I, th I think chronological Bibles can be very good. If that was your only Bible, you'd get hopelessly confused about where things were. But if you use it as a supplement to your Bible reading, I think it's a great thing. Okay. Now, here are just some more observations on the Bible. Excuse me, from Sidlow Baxter. He says, the Bible is a book. Although it is an anthology of writings, if you want to call it that, it shows an overall unified design and a progressive unfolding of doctrine from beginning to end. Why does it show that? Because God wrote it. Okay? Exactly. Okay? It's a record. The Old Testament records the outcalling of Israel, if you want to call it that. The New Testament records the outcalling of the church. And you see God not only in propositional discourse, in something saying, God is love or God is holy, but you see the person of God as he acts in history. And, and the Bible is rather unique in that sense among religious works in the world. The Bible is also a revelation. It's not just a record. It's not just a book. It's God telling us things that we what? <coughs> that we what? That we need to know and can't get anywhere else. Okay, you guys said it exactly right. Stuff we need to know and we can't get any other way. All right, and the Bible is a message, is it not? It's not just a lot of information. It's a message that does what? It calls us to respond. And it doesn't even just invite us to respond, does it? It commands us to respond. All right? Okay. Geisler and Nix made these interesting comparisons. In the Old Testament, Christ is in shadow. In the New Testament, he's in substance. In the Old Testament, he's in pictures. In the New Testament, he's in person. Nice how they match the letters here. In the Old Testament, he's in type. In the New Testament, he is there in truth. In the Old Testament, he's in ritual. He's, he's prophesied in the way that the... Uh, worship system worked in the New Testament he's there in reality in the Old Testament he's latent in the New Testament he's patent these are two words we don't use very much anymore but they're great words in the Old Testament he was prophesied in the New Testament he's present 
in the Old Testament he was implicitly revealed and obviously in the New Testament he's explicitly <laughs> revealed. Okay. Geisler and Nix also make this interesting breakdown. I'm not going to read through this one. It's in your notes. What they're doing is they're noticing that there are kind of parallels in the sense, in the way that the Old Testament and New Testament are laid out. And you can look at that in your notes yourself. Um, all right, here's some fun stuff to memorize, and most of you probably know this. There are 66 books in the Bible. There also, coincidentally, are 66 chapters in the book of Isaiah. The first 39 chapters of Isaiah focus mostly on judgment. The last 22nd focus mostly on redemption. It's not a complete separation. Interestingly, there happen to be 39 books in the Old Testament. There happen to be 27 books in the New Testament. Why it is that way, I don't know. And if you forget how many books are in the New Testament, 3 times 9 is 27. It's just fun stuff. Okay? All right. I think that's the last slide here. All right, let's break a little early 